You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. This is your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that is happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags to the nation's iconic landscapes, even to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Access Fund. Since 1991, the Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support the Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org or by supporting your local climbing organization. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Climbing Advocate podcast. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you're tuning in from. I actually got the first uh, couple international listens on the last episode, one from Australia and one from Austria. So thank you to those tuning in internationally. That made me feel real, real good, real warm and fuzzy. So thank you very much. On uh, this month's episode, I had Laura Bogus call in from North Carolina. Um, she's based out in North Carolina, born and raised out there. Uh, she's a professor at Mars Hill University. She's also a yoga teacher. She was on the board of the Carolina Climbers Coalition for quite a while as well. She's rad. She wears many different hats and does them all very well. And I loved our conversation that we had. We got real nerdy on some science stuff. We switched up the topic a little bit this week away from public lands and land management and dove more into what she studies and knows really well, lichen. She's uh, generally a botanist, but more specifically, she's a lichenologist, which is the first lichenologist I've ever met and maybe will ever meet. We kind of joked in the episode that there's not too many people in her field, um, but what she does is super neat, and it was really interesting hearing about the importance of lichen in the greater ecosystem and how it just makes the rock look so cool sometimes. Dove into how climbing fits into all this you might be thinking like okay lichen this sounds maybe not very climbing related but it very much is and climbers can definitely be good stewards and advocates of our ecosystem and and lichen um, so really neat conversation i was so excited about this one so i hope you all enjoy it and without further ado here it is Not live, but we're recording. Oh, we're, oh, we're live. We're live. <laughs> I, lo I love saying that. And we're live. <laughs> All right, Laura. Well, thanks for joining me today. I'm very, very excited for this conversation. I've really been looking forward to this for a few months. So thanks for joining. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, so you're a professor out in Mars Hill, North Carolina. Where is Mars Hill? It is Western North Carolina, just a little bit north of Asheville. So I'm like 20 minutes um, from Asheville, and we're a small liberal arts university that um, has really, uh, my classes are capped at 18, and we get a lot of time like with, with our students, and a really, really great place to work. I, I love it here. And how long have you been there? This is my fifth year. Awesome. Are you originally from North Carolina? I am. I'm actually from Burnsville, which is a teeny even teenier little town further north um, in the mountains and so sort of like coming home for me to to get to come back to the mountains and find a job in my field awesome 
Well, we talked a little bit about your time in Colorado earlier, your very brief stint. Um, did you spend any time anywhere else living or studying or anything? Uh, yeah, I am actually a, a North Carolina girl kind of through and through, but I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad. Um, and then I lived lived out west a little, lived in Europe a little, and then went down to Guatemala for the Peace Corps. So I was in the U.S. Peace Corps for about three years, a little less than three years. Nice. Yeah. But North Carolina through and through, huh? Yeah. <laughs> born, <laughs> born and raised. Yeah, yeah right on. Well, that's where... Is the pr- like most of the premier climbing around Asheville? Is that accurate? I don't know too much about North Carolina. Yeah, most of it's concentrated in the mountains here. So the high country around Boone has some incredible um, bouldering, especially, but just gorgeous crags. It's beautiful, traditional climbs. Um, Linville Gorge is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Asheville is fairly centrally located. It's like an hour to two hours from from all the nicest climbing almost. That's so. awesome. Yeah, I've heard that if you want to crag go east if you want to you know the obvious obviously the more bigger stuff head west is the cragging better in the east than the west would you (laughs) concur good good question i mean it depends um like the gorge there is actually some some really nice um big wall and and multi-pitch stuff around here Mm -hmm. um laurel knob is the highest uh continual cliff on the east coast and it's like maybe an hour and a half from here really awesome adventure climbing um so, but I, ha- I don't have a ton of experience out west, so I can't really. I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to to let others judge that. I'm pretty sure I got that from Brady Robinson. Okay, so fair. I, well, I'm Brady gonna, would know. Yeah, I'm gonna hold that to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you wear several positions, um, or ser- excuse me, several hats in your positions at Mars Hill. And you're a professor. I read up on you a little bit. Um, coordinator of the Environmental Studies Program, a mentor of the Action or excuse me, Environmental Action Club and a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's, it's fun to get to do a lot of things when you're at a small school. So. Yeah. Um, can you talk about those roles a little bit and how they do they all play off each other? Yeah, yeah, I actually feel really grateful that my work now can kind of, sort of like the Venn diagram of a lot of things that I love get to come together. Um, so I've always been really passionate about the outdoors and understanding ecology and paying attention to organisms, to non-human organisms. But I also have a pretty strong um, like spiritual connection to nature, and I've had a yoga practice for many years, and I think those things are all sort of part and parcel. They're kind of woven together for me, and I'm really grateful to get the chance to um, kind of bring them together for my students in, mm-hmm. in the day-to-day. So. Have you done any work with youth, connecting youth to nature? Um, mm-hmm. Just you, you mentioned something about spiritual connection, so that, that kind of made me think about connecting youth at a young age and how important that is these days. Have you done any work like that? Just kind of curious. Yeah, yeah, a little. Um, less less formally, but um, definitely in the Peace Corps, um, my site mate and I started a Boy Scout troop, which neither of us had been scouts, but we're like, what's a good thing we can do here? <laughs> and we spent a lot of time camping trips and um, being out. And then I, I also work for Green River Preserve some in the summers. It's a, a summer camp, but also... Um, outdoor environmental education center and schools will bring students for a night or sometimes two nights Um, and we do I'm a a naturalist mentor so I do I lead hikes and interpretive programming Um, it's really a special place there and and they're very much in that kind of philosophy of we are all connected and um, in order to nurture the whole person having a direct connection with nature and um, 
understanding the underlying um, kind of spirituality of nature is is so important for us. Mm-hmm. So really appreciate them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're here to talk about climbing, so uh, I'm going to dive into that a little bit. Where does your climbing fit into all this? When was your first exposure to climbing? What kind of climber are you? Um, you're also a board member of the CCC. Um, Actually just rotated off. Oh, um, did you? Sadly. Okay. Yeah, okay. I miss uh, it. I term miss it. was up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. I did two terms. Gotcha. So what was your first exposure to climbing? Um, when I was an undergrad, um, well, so I, I've always loved explorers and like to read about like Shackleton and that kind of stuff. Um, but when I was an undergrad, I started to get interested in mountain climbing. I went um, I had a scholarship to undergrad and allowed me some travel in the summers. And we got to climb Mount Kinabalu, which is the highest peak in Southeast Asia. Um, kind of small time if you're a real mountaineer, but for me, it was a big deal. We climbed it in a typhoon and I felt really intrepid. And I kind of got into mountaineering from that. Um, and when I returned from Peace Corps, I did some volcanoes down in South America and um, realized that if I wanted to take it to the next level, I'd probably have to learn some technical rope skills. So I found a friend to take me out climbing. I remember we went bouldering in Boone, actually. Um, And I was pretty much hooked from there. I I stopped. I've hardly done any mountaineering since then. Um, and just kind of got really enamored with the kind of focus and strength and flexibility and almost meditative quality of of rock climbing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, but it wasn't until... 2012 wasn't until after I'd started gotten back from Peace Corps and started grad school that I that I started climbing. So it was rel- relative latecomer. Okay, so I was, that was you like my uh, I had a question I had a little bit further down, but were you uh, like a scientist, botanist first, or a climber mm-hmm. first, like you know chicken or the egg kind of thing? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's a great question, and it, it is kind of um, I, I guess technically you would have to say I was a scientist first because I was a biology major in undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, but becoming um, coming back and knowing I wanted to go to grad school in ecology, but then finding um, Gary Walker, who studies cliff face ecology, right at the time that that all I really wanted to do was rock climb. I think most <laughs> climbers can relate to that phase where yep. you're just like can't think about anything else. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So I was in that phase, and I saw an article on his office door. We were just wandering around in the summer on a climbing trip, and um, I was like, wow, you mean I could actually get a grant to study this? Um, And kind of the rest was history from there. Um, Gary was a great mentor, and I, I... my interest in climbing and cliff ecology really kind of grew together um, organically, I think, in a yeah. cool way. Yeah, that's, that's great that you can definitely marry the two and have a perfect scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's super neat. So cliff ecology, that's what mm-hmm. we're here to talk about today. I've done a little bit of studying up on it, but I'm largely unfamiliar. So I'm super excited for you to educate me yeah. and the audience today. Totally. You're not alone. <laughs> yeah, we, oh, there, sure. there are not that many of us. Yeah. So. Well, great. You, that's a great segue. So you're a botanist, but you specialize in, what was the word um, you gave me earlier? Uh, lichenologist? Lichens? Like, lichenologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's probably not too many people in your in your field, I would guess. There aren't a lot of us. Yeah. No, but there are some <laughs> some really amazing, really amazing lichenologists out there. Awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so what what is cliff ecology? What is cliff biodiversity? Um, so cliff ecology is looking at and understanding the 
ways organisms interact with the cliff environment. So I mostly look at um, vegetation, so lichen, especially on steep faces, you're almost only going to find lichen, although there are some really cool endemic um, plants as well. Um, but it also would encompass uh, peregrine falcons or green salamanders or uh, mountain goats or marmots or whatever uses the, the cliff as habitat. Um, cliff ecology would involve the study of, of those organisms and how they're interacting with the cliffs. Gotcha. One question with that. You said steep faces. That's most, um, I guess, the best environment for lichen to grow? Uh, not not necessarily it's okay. just uh the best it's the lichens can take advantage of that environment better than anything else so you'll find lichens everywhere on almost any rock and all over all kinds of trees but you'll also find other organisms and on steep faces you'll find the lichens but not the other stuff okay often. gotcha because yeah. i was thinking i don't know this is my mind that seems a little counterintuitive being a neophyte here is it because it stays shaded? Um, the reason why I thought it was a little counterintuitive is it doesn't stay wet. Like steep right. faces, you know, are, you know, obviously are more are drier. Right. Um, am I thinking? Am I on the right track there? Are there any? Is there any substance there? Yeah, totally. That's that's a great observation. So the reason that um, the the dry conditions and um, usually shadier tend to uh, preclude a lot of vascular plants so things that need soil moisture mosses of course need damp areas mm -hmm. and so but lichens are much more dry desiccation tolerant and much more um, they're just it, certain species of lichen are much more intrepid in terms of the the range of conditions that they can tolerate mm -hmm. so that's I think why they're able to to be on the undersides of big overhangs for example gotcha okay that makes sense um, but you, and you like you said though you see lichen everywhere. I mean, the needles out in California, like that, that green hue on those formations is just beautiful. Yeah. And that yeah. obviously varies from something out in North Carolina. Uh, to right. Different very species, different right? habitats. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, very different um, families. And I'm so glad you said that because one of the reasons I love lichen so much is that I just think they're beautiful. I think they're so aesthetic and. Um, really add so much to my experience as a climber, like getting out and, and noticing them. So. Oh, of course, yeah. Like being being from Colorado, not originally, but have living living in Colorado for the past ten years, you know, I associate certain looks to the rock with the, like the lichen. And when I see a picture without a climber on it, I can tell that it's like Colorado. It just mm. has that look to it, and I find that beautiful as well. I don't think you usually associate lichen and beauty. Um, very deliberately, but I, I, it is beautiful. Well, hopefully after people listen to the podcast, <laughs> they'll begin. That's, that's <laughs> what we're here to talk about today. Awesome. Um, so you did mention uh, predatory birds and bats, even though you're uh, a botanist, you, you don't have too much familiarity with, with, uh, with the fauna side of things? Um, I, I, so I would say yes, familiarity, but I'm not an, certainly not an expert. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm also cautious to call myself an expert about that, like <laughs> about botany or lichens, uh, um, but those so are modest. things that I've spent more time studying. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I'd be happy to talk a little bit about, especially the raptors. I think in North Carolina, um, the peregrine falcons have been um, a pretty important interface between um, ecologists and the climbing community and land managers. And so I'm, I'd be happy to tell the story of that if you like. Fire away. Um, okay, cool. So. 
peregrines are um, a threatened raptor, um, also really beautiful and impressive birds. In fact, I think that they're the fastest flyers in the world when they're um, uh, swooping in on prey. They can go up to 60 or 70 miles an hour. Um, I should probably fact check that too, but... That's terrifying. um, Right? They're amazing. (laughs) And actually Googling, I always play my students this, there's like peregrines with a GoPro on and you just really get the sense of how incredible they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So they nest in Western North Carolina. Um, They tend to be quite finicky during their nesting um, and breeding season. It's really easy to spook a mama peregrine off the nest and the eggs can desiccate or um, so dry out or um, she can knock the eggs out of the nest or um, they, they really need a pretty undisturbed area for their eerie for their nest. Um, and unfortunately, or, or fortunately in some ways, uh, there's a good bit of overlap between the peregrine uh, the nesting sites. There are 16 nest sites, so we're not talking about a ton. It's, it's a rare bird, um, but many of those are on cliffs that are climbable. So some of the really good work that my friend Chris Kelly, who is a biologist with the um, North Carolina Resource Commission, so that's our state wildlife agency, has done a lot of work with the Carolina Climbers Coalition with myself and, and Mike Reardon, who's the new executive director of the CCC, to, um, to help the climbing community understand why this is important, um, partly just people knowing that there are only 16 pairs and um, spooking a mama bird from the nest could kill her whole clutch for that season. I think just knowing that helps climbers understand you know, that, that it's important to respect closures. Um, but we've also had some really good success in um, feedback with Chris on her research and starting to understand more about line of sight and where, at, how far the, out the closure needs to go. Um, and at Laurel Knob, I'm sorry, at Cedar Rock, we actually, uh, a new pair began nesting. And the original closure was for um, most of that section of cliff. But after Mike Reardon went out and talked to her and they walked the cliff line and figured out where the routes were and line of sight, they were actually able to reopen um, almost all of the the routes on that area, but still preserve line of sight. And the peregrines were able to fledge successfully last year. Um, So, yeah. Um, So that, that I think is a great example of how understanding that ecologists and climbers were on the same team. And if we can work together, usually come out better for... For everybody. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, we all want the same thing. And yeah. those raptor closures are probably the most common wildlife closures that you see, mm-hmm. at least yep. in my experience. Um, yep. I haven't seen, um, maybe, maybe you can uh, say different here, but I have not seen a cliff be closed due to, you know, a, a certain species, uh, you know, of lichen or something. Um, will that mm-hmm. happen? And has that happened? Yeah, it's not, it's not, um, out of the question, there are certain areas that are closed because they're sensitive habitat. So it's not just one species, but it's maybe a particular assemblage of species that's really rare or fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to, to understand that um, that cliff faces, but also the edges oftentimes, or alpine habitats, um, are, are pretty fragile. They're, they're rare, um, relatively speaking, on the landscape. And there are a lot of things that um, can get thrown off with a lot of disturbance. But the good news 
is that there are ways that without closures, we can really minimize that impact. And so understanding certain management um, practices can, can make a big difference in protecting them. What's their importance in like the greater ecosystem, the lichen? Mm. Um, so lichens do all kinds of amazing things, actually. The um, kind of the most basic is their soil producers. So in the process of ecological succession, where you go from no life to life, um, so for example, the Galapagos Islands, when they first were volcanoes reaching out of the ocean, there was no life on them. And the first thing that happened is they uh, were colonized by lichens from spores that blew over or were pooped by a bird or somehow got there. And then they, um, once they establish, they secrete chemicals that break down the rock, that weather the rock, and create soil that can then provide uh, the basic material for mosses or for vascular plants to take hold. Um, so they're they're pioneers mm-hmm. um, in terms of succession. Mm-hmm. Um, they're important food um, habitat for animals. Hummingbirds use lichens and almost exclusively in their nests. There's a species of hummingbird. The reindeer lichens in the Arctic um, are the main uh, food source for reindeer and a lot of ungulates in that in those northern climes. It's the only nutrition they've got through the winter time. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, they're also they're they're useful for people. Usnia, which is the old man's beard, it's um kind of a it looks like a beardy kind of bushy lichen, pretty familiar to people on the East Coast, um, especially when you're in areas with, with good air quality. Um, it has uh, antibacterial properties that uh, attack gram-positive bacteria rather than gram-negative. And usually the gram-positive is the, the stuff you don't want, and your gram-positive is your good gut flora that helps regulate digestion. So. Um, all the hippies in Asheville love Usnia as a <laughs> as a good way to preserve your gut flora and, and keep yourself from getting sick. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. Some Eastern medicine. Yep. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, I could go on. They, they are good air quality indicators. So certain species, if they're present, it means you're probably low on NOx and SOx and a lot of the precursors to acid rain. And if you see lichens disappearing, it's sort of a canary in the coal mine for um, needing to... Uh, to, to address air quality issues. Yep, so. that makes sense. That makes perfect yep. sense. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Very, very mm-hmm. cool. Um, mm-hmm. So how does climbing fit into all this? Um, I, I looked up some peer-reviewed articles uh, the past few days just to you know get to familiarize myself with some of this. And I just got a mixed bag of, of uh, studies being done. Some say that climbing is negligible. Um, some say like I read one specifically in uh, about some cliffs in the Mediterranean around Spain and stuff, and mm-hmm. they said climbers did have a very significant impact mm-hmm. on these cliff sides where virtually there was no disturbance at all before. Um, mm-hmm. What have you seen? Um, yeah, that's a great question, and I think an important one for us as climbers. Um, the certainly um, climbing impacts the system. I don't think we understand. I think it varies so much that it's really hard to make broad generalizations. Um, For example, in some of our work coming out of the lab, um, we found that crustose lichen diversity actually increased. So crustose are the lichens that grow right up on the rock, like you couldn't even peel them off, like you'd have to take a rock sample in order to get the lichen. Mm -hmm. And those guys increase in diversity and um, abundance, so cover, uh, with climbing. So 
That could be because we're removing some of the competition from bigger plants, or they also kind of like a certain amount of disturbance. There, there are a number of different reasons for that, but that's sort of a counterintuitive. You'd think that if somebody comes and scrubs, then then you would be decreasing a lot of the, the diversity. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so so that's sort of a specific of some of of what we have found. Um, I, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. I think that the the effects depend on the management and how climbers are climbing, um, especially in terms of having one of the management implications that that we have um, our, our cliff ecology lab tends to suggest to land managers and climbing communities is that if possible. Um, having anchors at the top so that you're not making a live anchor and or topping out onto the edge of the cliff because often a lot of the trampling and longer term damage happens on those edge habitats mm-hmm. um, so the obed river gorge awesome sport climbing um, they instituted this uh, top anchor policy i believe it was back in 2010 um, and they're there's been um, significant regrowth of a lot of the trampling on the top edges. So, um, so in terms of impact, it varies, and there there actually isn't a lot in the literature to um, that that directly says here is what like the the climbing is doing. That will come as more research is done, just understanding that better. Um, but there are some pretty simple. Um, ways to minimize the impact that we know we are having and what are those um so that the the anchor um stuff is one which sometimes in north carolina so north carolina has uh a pretty like staunch trad ethic which i really appreciate i'm so Um, glad you mentioned that because i was gonna bring that up yeah totally Mm -hmm. i i love this um about it here um but that does mean sometimes there's pushback towards building a life or um placing uh putting rings at the top of a of a pitch or a route as opposed to using the live anchor um but i do think that from a conservation standpoint um that my my personal opinion and i speak for no one but myself um is that having those rings um is is going to reduce enough of the impact to to make it worth having it seem a little more tame. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that makes perfect so. sense. I was going to say, I, I usually feel like I hear the opposite of where land managers don't don't want any fixed hardware or minimal fixed hardware. Right. For yeah. aesthetics or just for the sense of like, yeah, not having a trace. Is that usually what you... Exactly. Or like right. in wilderness, mm-hmm. you know, minimal fixed anchors in wilderness. Yep. Um, yep. But that makes perfect sense to conserve the flora and the mm-hmm. lichen, you know, whatever other species are up there. Um, that mm-hmm. makes perfect sense, and I, I fully back that. And I think, uh, um, you know, now it's, it is it is easier to camouflage your hardware, yeah. and we have had some good success in working with our land managers, both at the state and um, federal level, at, at, you know, understanding. Also, s- there's certain safety issues as well that you uh, alleviate with having fixed anchors. Yep, so, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and when I was at the Gunks uh, this past October for the you know after the Access Fund event, um, you know we were topping out on like every route at the very top of the cliff, mm-hmm. and using trees to build anchors off of, and and there already are big huge fixed anchors off those trees if I remember correctly, big cables you can um, wrap off of and whatnot, um, 
And then I think in like Paradise Forks in Arizona, they have a pretty strict, please correct me if I'm wrong, anyone out there, um, like minimal top anchor uh, fixed hardware. It's all mm -hmm. just like wrapping in off trees or belaying off trees and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it can vary from place to place, of course. Right, right. Have you published any, any papers on this, on this study? Yeah, I have. So I did um, a, a broad scale. I've done um, some work on a lot of different areas in the southeast, most of it on sandstone, actually. I haven't done as much work right here in western North Carolina. Really? Um, but yeah, well, on the, sand, the, on the, the Ridge and Valley sandstone in Tennessee, Kentucky. So I did work at um, White Rocks and Cumberland Gap National Park and um, the Obed, a little bit of work in the Obed. And um, Big South Fork is where the bulk of my... Um, I did, we had a major federal grant to do a project there and, um, in the Big South Fork, it was kind of an interesting case because Big South Fork has like three, over 300 miles of cliff line. It's an amazing, an amazing area with tons of beautiful rock. Um, but there's not a lot of climbing. So one of the, I think the park was really, uh, visionary in saying, you know, we see that rock climbing is increasing. We're kind of in between the Obed and the Red River Gorge, and we think that probably climbing will increase in the park. Um, we want to know how to best manage. Like, we want to open the park to climbing, but we want to do it in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. So we did a pretty large – in fact, I think it's the largest scale um, – and, yeah, again <laughs> – any, any cliff ecologist out there can correct me if I'm wrong, if there's been a new study published that I'm not aware of, but I think our study is the biggest cliff study ever done in terms of the number of transects we did. Wow. Um, we did 60 transects, um, and some of them were like 200 feet long. So we looked at a lot of a lot of cliff face, and part of that study was a climbing impact to try to look at. We did paired transects of climbed and unclimbed, um, surveying uh, along one uh, rope a meter either side for the climbed route and then as close as possible on an unclimbed segment and compared. Um, and we did not find any significant results. We did not find uh, disturbance that was that was related to climbing in our in the stats that I ran on those on those data. Um, it could partly be because there hadn't been a lot of traffic. Um, a lot of those were kind of scary trad routes, and um, it's 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 remote and not as well known. So um, there weren't it's it's not a crag like you know roadside at, at the red. You're it's not seeing nearly that much. Yep. Um, but um, I think that those data could be really excellent as a baseline study because I do think that climbing um, already, I know bouldering has increased a lot in, at Big South Fork. So I'm really glad that we had the chance to get those data because now down the line, we can go back and survey, resurvey those transects that we sampled and, and see how the communities are changing over time. Yeah, that's great to have that baseline data. Yeah. And mm -hmm. do subsequent studies um, mm -hmm. and some adaptive management over time. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yep. Did you see what kind of sandstone that was? Um, I would have to look up the, like, okay. you mean the sort of the rock subtype in Big South Park? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, let me just look it up right now, sure. and then I'll tell you. So, when I think of sandstone, as you think of, like, Wingate sandstone out in, like, Indian Creek, mm -hmm. um, I mean, you don't really, I don't think I've ever seen any lichen, per se, on the on the rock out there. Is that just uninhabitable, uninhabitable for any lichen? I don't know specifically about Indian Creek. In the east, there are places where there's not a whole lot of lichen, but you would be surprised. You'd, you'd be um, 
like the closer you look often um uh, there are actually lichens that grow kind of in between um crystals in the rock there that are called um oh i'm gonna i'm gonna space that name too um endolithic so lithic is rock and endo means inside mm-hmm. um so the the fungal and algal partner um which i i guess i should say lichens are um actually two unrelated organisms living in symbiosis. They're a fungus that provides structure, and then they're algae that photosynthesizes and provides the sugar. Okay. Um, so what I tell my students is that Freddie fungus and Annie algae went on a date and took a lichen to each other. Um, hey. So that, hey <laughs> It's like the, the dad jokes that oh, all totally. science teachers should tell. <laughs> so. Do you know uh, anything about calcite? Because I've seen that on the sandstone out in the Moab area. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about that? You, you mean like what kinds of lichens might be on calcite? Or, or just like how calcite forms. I know it's um, actually, I don't know anything about it. I'm not going to kid myself. Yeah. Um, just any familiarity uh, yeah. with that at all? I don't know. A t- yeah, I am familiar. I don't know a ton, but it's, it's carbonate. Um, so it's like calcium carbonate, um, that sort of crystalline mm-hmm. structure it tends to be quite hard. I think it would be CaCO3. Um, it's like we here in the east see more quartzite where you've got like those sort of veins of of really pretty either colored or kind of white rock and it does vary in fact even within the bands you'll see different lichens um that that will grow with that quartzite or or calcite um, versus the conglomerate or whatever surrounding it um, because of the minerals that are weathering out and that the lichens can you know, that th- they prefer, the substrate that they prefer. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, this is all really fascinating stuff. Yay, good. And I'm I glad th- you I, think so. Yeah, and I think that you are an expert. I'm just going to go on the record and say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the vote of confidence. Oh, for sure. Is there, have you witnessed any pushback from the climbing community? I don't know. Is there, like, we talked about closures and stuff and um, mm-hmm. just respecting lichen on the rock while you're out climbing just anything of that nature i don't know if i'm saying that right but yeah no i I think i i think i get your question and it's a really important one i'm glad you asked it um i have to say that uh my friends and climbing community are awesome and so usually um the most pushback i get is just getting made fun of for being a nerd you know (laughs) i think i think most of of the the people that i come in contact with um kind of get it and and realize that it can kind of add a layer to your experience to pay attention and notice. Um, however, I will say that that nobody in my climbing community is gonna like not scrub the rock tripe on their pet project, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I think that that's fine. I mean, I'm also pretty middle of the road in terms of understanding that recreation and conservation can coexist and that recreation is never gonna have no impact at all. Um, it's just a question of um, trying, to, trying to be good stewards. So, so that's the, the personal, my personal answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I've found people to be really supportive and interested. Um, I will say, though, that um, in reading about and hearing about some other people's stories, they have felt a lot more pushback. And I think it makes sense, especially when you get, I think one of my advantages is that I can kind of be, I am a climber and an ecologist. And so I kind of understand the motivations and um goals of of both groups but i think it can sometimes begin to feel like you know the climbers don't 
care about the ecosystem and the scientists or land managers don't care about how important the the sport is and how how much we love it you know and it can seem sort of antagonistic Mm -hmm. so i know that that exists i hope that as more as there are just more climbers in general but also as more climbers um, become interested and engaged either with through citizen science or maybe more people will become cliff ecologists i hope so i think they will um as this happens i think the overlap and I think that the dialogue and understanding will just grow, and I think that ultimately will be really good for climbing access, um, as is the case in something like the Peregrine Closures or in with, at the Big South Fork. Um, if if we know that, you know, there might be something rare or fragile in this area, but we can go out and check instead of having a blanket closure, we'll have you know just this one route, or we can add interpretive signs or put in top anchors. I think that there's so so there are so many ways to kind of work together that um, that I feel really hopeful. Um, so that's great, and yeah, climbing is just one aspect of this larger piece of the puzzle here. And, you know, it's just one piece of the puzzle here. And if climbers can become more educated on land management practices, more involved with like the sci- the scientific stuff and understanding lichen or birds or endangered species, all that archaeology, all that stuff, just having that more comprehensive, holistic understanding would be so huge for mm-hmm. this community. Yeah. I think it was Zachary Latrie that, that um, quoted this, and he was quoting someone else, but the quote is like, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. Um, and you, it, you know, it's a little antagonistic too, but I, I, I really like that just in the sense that you know, learning about and working with um, scientists and land managers is really ultimately not only fun for us, can be, but but really will advance um, access and, you know, our, our relationships with, with the places that we love. Oh, for sure. You know, the, 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 the cliff line is the resource that we use and it provides us so much joy and happiness. Like we're just users of this and respecting the resource that gives us so much and stewarding the resource that gives us so much is just monumental. Yeah. Yep. Um, We're visitors. Yeah, exactly. So I I missed your presentation at the Access Fund event in New York um, back in October or September, actually. I can't remember why. I think it might have been at the same time I had my panel. So, (laughs) you know, that's why I missed yours. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there anything else you wanted to add from your presentation that we did not cover? Um, Good question. Gosh, it's been a long time ago now. Um, But no, no problem. I, th- I think we've hit on a lot of the main themes. Um, I did talk a little bit about green salamanders, the case study there, and a case study um, my friend Aaron Parlier in um, Grayson Highlands uh, discovered a, a bluet, an endangered species there, and the climbers were actually able to help land managers find um, some some new individuals of that population, and they put up a couple signs and kept the boulder open, and people and everybody's happy. So I, I, did, I gave a few more studies and, and examples, but the take-home message was the same, that, that this stuff is cool, lichens are awesome, um, I could talk about them all day, so if you're interested. Um, but essentially, like we're, we're on the same team, especially at a time when um, public lands feel like they're under threat. Um, I think it's, it's even more important to, to understand that, um, that if, if we get it, if we get how special these places are, um, then we can we can find a way to to work together. Yeah, 
are there any online resources, books, or anything else that people could consult to learn some more about this stuff? Hmm, that's a great question. So if you don't want to delve into peer review papers, which can be a bit dry, <laughs> yeah. um, I would say, um, so the Access Fund has some great resources. Um, there's like a, a Peregrine poster that sort of explains, there's a graphic showing what's going on with the birds at different times in the breeding season and why it's important not to climb and those sorts of um, just simple kind of basic information. We're hoping to get some more some more things published, like something for um, for lichens or for plant communities. Um, but there's not a whole lot more than that out right now. There's a book on cliff ecology. It's sort of a textbook style book by a guy named Doug Larson. He's sort of the, the grandfather, if you will, of cliff ecology. And um, again, it's, it's a lot of info, but it's great information. And that, you know, that's sort of the authority. That was the book that I ordered right when I started grad school and read cover to cover. Gotcha. Are you going to write a book? I don't know. I'm hoping. So I, I actually um, am hoping to continue with some pretty cool cliff-like studies of Western North Carolina. And one of the goals of that project is to do a field guide. So like being able to show photos of different lichens and you can take something out in the field with you. Maybe I'll make an app so you can use your phone and take a picture like the Shazam of lichens. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So so those are all kind of ideas knocking around. We'll see what which of them materialize. All right, well, definitely keep us posted. I would love to get that. Cool. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll make sure to link up uh, all that stuff in the show notes so people can look that up. I think I came across that Cliff Ecology book as I was fooling around in Google. Um, okay. When I did Google um, Cliff Ecology, the top, like, five or ten or something was all about rock climbing and cliff ecology. I mean, it was at the very top of the list. Yeah, um, I actually was, just did a really long interview with Climbing Magazine too. So they're they're oh, gonna nice. they're gonna be there's gonna be another pretty big article about it. Um, nice. So, yeah, which is kind of good. I don't want people to think that is only climbing impact because it's not. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Like there's a lot going on, and there's there are other disturbances too. Honestly, like. Um, four-wheelers and um, hikers do as much or way more in a lot of cases. In fact, I would say most cases do way more damage to, to edge habitat than, than climbers do. Edge um, habitat, not yep. the actual cliff face? Right. Okay. It's true that yeah. the climbers are almost really the only consistent disturbance on the face. Yeah, that I makes sense. Say. Yeah. 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 I, I would never have thought of that really until you mentioned it. Uh, can you, can you elaborate any more on that? Do you know of any studies or anything out there about uh, comparative impacts? Great. That's actually a great question. And the answer is not really. There's not a lot. I, I, in fact, I don't know of any study that is saying we looked at the impact of, say, mountain biking, four-wheeling, hiking, and climbing on this particular habitat and mm -hmm. compared the four or three or whatever. I, I know of no studies like that. Um, so... There are there's some pretty good literature about recreational impacts in other sports. Climbing has been uh, late in terms of getting that kind of research because you have to rappel in order to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, I I think that would be really interesting. So, anybody out there wants a, a graduate thesis? Yeah, um, yeah. Let's yeah. get a citizen science program mm -hmm. going here. This is really cool. Totally. <laughs> yeah, there may be something in the pipeline actually. All right, so well, we'll see. I still have not been climbing out east yet um so if i get out to carolina maybe we can go do some uh, nerdy science stuff and get some pitches in at the same time totally that yeah great. i would love that be, be <laughs> awesome 
Um, I, I, always, I usually wrap up each episode by asking uh, the guest if you have any advice for LCOs or climbers relating to the topic of the day that you can give out. Advice. Um, well, or best practices, see. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the kind of technical best practice would be to just consider that um, top anchor uh, issue because it, it is sometimes you have to give up a little um, and if you want to want to move away from live anchors but from an ecological perspective so far there's pretty good evidence that that can be really helpful in terms of conservation um, so that's sort of my techie thing mm-hmm. the the other techie thing that I didn't mention earlier about a management implication is that it helps a lot um, to have uh, access trails that come in perpendicular rather than parallel along the base of the cliff. So there can be rare things that like cliff bases because it's quite different from the internal forest. And so having the access trails go in perpendicular rather than letting people's stuff spread all out and just kind of like walk along the base of the cliff, that can be useful. It's really hard to enforce though. And I'm guilty of this too. You like throw down your pack and then you want to look at all the routes. And so you walk right up along the cliff and it's, it's hard. Um, But I know that the Access Fund um, conservation team, just for uh, trail impacts and erosion and things, they have done some really creative things with um, traffic, moving, climbing traffic, and trying to to keep uh, impacts to a minimum. So so from a conservation standpoint, I also support that. Yeah, that makes Um, sense. Yeah. And then kind of the bigger picture, I'll just say it again, why why not sound like a broken record? Um, Just like get out and look at things, you know, like next time you're at your crag, we have a really unique opportunity too in that, especially like your local crag, like your project, you're there day in, day out, different kinds of weather and through seasons and you can start to really know the place and connect to it in a way, um, noticing the birds that come in and out or, you know, that when, when this flower blooms or um, just starting to notice those things, I think can really... Um, connect you and and add kind of a layer to your to your climbing day which which for me is really powerful yeah of course yeah mm-hmm. well that's super cool uh add something to the experience mm-hmm. kind of backtracking just a, just a little bit what or is there a crag that has that is like the richest in cliff biodiversity in oh the country? <laughs> is there gosh like the crag like i read an article about the gunks being like uh-huh. very rich in biodiversity diverse um, yeah is, do, do you know of like the one? Gosh, Pete, that is a good question <laughs> that I bet that no one could answer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I will say there are some incredible um, and unique habitats, like even the Niagara Escarpment, which is where Doug Larson did a lot of his work, has this ancient cedar forest where the oldest tree is like 2,000 years old. They're these tiny snags, and they've been able to like hold on on these, um, you know, steep cracks and crevices for for thousands of years and no one really knew until he took a core down to to find them um but but no one no one knows like we know so little actually about the diversity in so many of these places um i'd say that's an open question awesome. yeah <laughs> all right well right on laura this has been so cool i you know we changed up the topic a little bit today the previous episode we talked about a lot, a lot about land management and stuff and get real deep in the weeds with this science stuff uh, i know we could go all day about this but mm-hmm. this has been so informative i'm really grateful for your time and this is this has been great good thanks i've enjoyed it too yeah for sure all right well uh we'll talk again soon and uh 
enjoy the rest of your week and take care. Cool. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Laura. Mm-hmm. Bye. Ya. Really had a good time chatting with Laura. That was super fun. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it too. I'm sure next month's episode will be just as good. Um, they've all been super fun. And thank you all for tuning in again. See you all next time.